a great honor to switch pulpits with a man that I consider not only a mentor, but a dear friend. In fact, my only disappointment is that I'm not at my church to hear him preach. When we were working out the details for today, a problem occurred to me, so I let Stephen know that I didn't think it was fair. I told him that he has three services and we only have one, so I have to do three times the work that he had to do. Well, he agreed with me that it wasn't fair, but he saw it a little different. Josh, he said, you have three chances to get it right. I have to get it right the first time. (laughs) Well, thankfully for you, this is the third service. Do you enjoy traveling? How many of you have traveled outside of this country? Wow, the vast majority. As a teenager, I went on a trip to Mexico with our church, and I was blown away at how different everything was. Did you realize they speak a different language in Mexico? Yeah, all I learned to say was, no comprehende espanol. They eat different food, which is nothing like Taco Bell. Their schedule's different. Of course, it's easy to get used to an hour-long siesta in the afternoon. I think we should adopt that practice. The homes we stayed in were quite a bit different. We were there in the middle of the summer in Mexico with no air conditioning. The drivers. It's tough to even describe the driving where we were. It appeared to my eyes as a teenager that there were very few laws. If there were some, you made them up yourself or decided which ones you wanted to follow. I do remember it being very exciting. And then the cars. We were in Aramosillo, Mexico in the early 90s, and I would guess that four out of every five cars was a 1970s Volkswagen Beetle. Our arms and shoulders were bruised and sore from playing slug bug for 10 straight days. Well, spending that time immersed in Mexican culture helped me understand the differences in culture from one country to another. Since then, as I have had the opportunity to visit other countries, I'm reminded again and again about the difference. Yet despite the differences, one thing is always the same, no matter where you travel. In every state, in every country, there is one constant. Last year in Mexico, more than 13,000 people were murdered. In the United States, it was over 16,000. Last year in Mexico, over 200,000 adults were incarcerated. In the United States, it was nearly 10 times as many. You see, no matter where you travel, you will always discover sin. No matter where you look or how far you go, you will find men and women who are sinners in need of Jesus Christ. As we turn to the Gospel of John... We'll pick it up in chapter 4, and we'll watch as salvation spreads across the borders of Israel into a foreign land. In the previous chapter of John's Gospel, as readers were given this opportunity to eavesdrop on a conversation between Jesus and a very religious Israelite named Nicodemus. In their conversation, Jesus confronted Nicodemus with the truth that Nicodemus had a great need. He needed salvation from his sin. In today's study, we will listen as Jesus sits next to a well and has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Two different people, two different cultures, one common need. Just as the great religious leader Nicodemus needed salvation from his sin through Jesus Christ, so too did this foreign woman. Let's begin reading in John chapter 4, verse 7. 
Before I read, I want you to consider your own life, to evaluate your own heart. What is your greatest need? As we walk through this account today, let's do so with that question in our minds. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it with his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The context of this conversation is a long and taxing trip from Judea to Galilee. And Jesus and his disciples have taken it and they stop in the heat of the day to rest. His disciples head into town to pick up some food while Jesus sits resting by the well. He's not there long when a woman approaches the well to draw water. Jesus turns to her and in an unusual request at that time, he asks her to give him a drink. You can see from her response in verse 9 that this request surprises her. Notice what she says. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? This verse, verse 9, is the key to understanding the great significance of this passage. In fact, the placement of this account right after the account of Nicodemus in chapter 3 is important. When you compare the two individuals, Nicodemus and this woman from the well, you discover two complete and utter opposites. There are many striking differences. The first is their gender. In this culture, men were generally considered more important than women. It was unusual for a man to even speak with a woman. When the disciples get back from the grocery store, look at their response. Verse 27. They marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman. You see, this wasn't done. Religious conversation between two men was great, but between a man and a woman was simply unthinkable. Second, their status. Nicodemus was respected. He was a Pharisee, which means that he would have obeyed every one of God's laws. And then he would have made up a bunch more and obeyed those ones too, just to be safe. Pharisees were well known for their morality, their concern for keeping every commandment no matter how insignificant. For instance, it was their practice to strain their drink before taking a sip, lest a a gnat had fallen into their drink and died, and by touching it, they'd be made unclean. It's safe to say that this woman did not have 
the same commitment to keeping the rules. Later in their conversation with Jesus, Jesus asked her about her husband. Apparently she had tried marriage and failed. So she tried again, and again, and again, and again. Five times in total. And having five divorces on her record, she decided to go a little different route. This time she would just move in with the man and not marry him. It would not have been socially acceptable for Jesus to talk with a sinner like this. Then their nationality. He was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans did not get along. I recently finished reading a fascinating book on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and the 12-day manhunt for his assassin. I'm always amazed to read of the the deep hatred for those on the other side of the conflict. This hatred is epitomized in the person of John Wilkes Booth. After killing Lincoln, Booth wrote about it in his diary, referring to Abraham Lincoln, Our country owed all her troubles to him, and God simply made me the instrument of his punishment. And yet, for striking down a greater tyrant than they ever knew, I am looked upon as a common cutthroat. His utter contempt for this man was shared with many. In fact, I read about some families who still have an annual celebration on April 15th, commemorating Lincoln's assassination and honoring Booth. This same type of hatred and contempt marked the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. We can get a little taste of their deep-seated dislike for one another in the editorial comment found in verse 9. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus had every reason not to talk with this woman. But just as he did with Nicodemus, he begins a conversation with her that penetrates to the very heart of the issue. He understands her heart, her condition, and she does not. So with patience... In clarity, he informs this woman of three life-changing truths. First, he'll tell her of a universal need. Second, he'll offer a simple solution. And third, he'll promise a wonderful result. First, he informs her of a universal need. When Jesus begins his conversation with her, he uses common, everyday illustrations to help her understand deeper realities. He has asked her for a drink. Now in verse 10, he begins to transition this conversation away from the spiritual, or the physical, and to the spiritual. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying, you give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, she doesn't understand him. You see, she still thinks Jesus is talking about physical water. Her question in verse 11 reveals that. She looks at him and says, well, how in the world are you going to get water from this well? It's deep and you don't have a bucket. Where is this living water that you're going to get? Well, Jesus spends the rest of the account answering that question, where do you get the living water? This is the question that Jesus is going to answer. This is what she needs to know. However, before he answers her question about where the living water can be found, 
He wants her to understand her need for this living water. If you were to go into the doctor this week for a routine checkup, and after running just a few tests, the doctor said to you, well, looks like I'm going to have to schedule time for you to come in, lose consciousness, and I'll cut you open with a knife. What do you think? Well, I'm assuming that you, like me, would either run or at least make excuses. Why? That was not necessary. You had a busy week. You don't feel like getting cut open. However, if he were to sit you down and explain that there was something inside of you that could spread and kill you if it was not removed, and that the quicker it came out of you, the better chance you had to survive. If he convinced you of your desperate need for the operation and the, and the likelihood of a successful operation, then and only then would you entrust yourself to him. Would you place your life in his hands? Jesus wanted this woman to understand her desperate need for the salvation found through him. He points to the well and reminds her that anyone who drank of of this water would be thirsty again. But the living water only he could give would quench someone's thirst forever. The implication of this statement is that every man... And every woman is thirsty. There is something we each long for and thirst for. Jesus offers us something that will forever quench our spiritual thirst. Make no mistake. We all thirst for something. We all desire some type of spiritual satisfaction. The real question is... Where do you look to have your thirst quenched? Some attempt to quench their thirst through accumulating possessions in the hope that it will satisfy them. Whenever their spirit grows restless, they run to the store, pull out the plastic, and purchase something, anything to distract them for a little while longer. Some attempt to quench their thirst through physical food and drink. Whenever they begin to long for something more significant in life, they look for comfort and solace in a fancy dinner or maybe just a bag of Oreos. They attempt to silence their spiritual thirst by quenching their physical thirst with another beer or glass of wine. C.S. Lewis in his classic book, Mere Christianity, identifies this same longing for happiness when he writes that history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Later in their conversation, Jesus, with the skill of a surgeon, cuts right to the heart of this woman's search for happiness. He tells her, verse 16, to go to her husband. (laughs) I don't have one. You're right, Jesus replies, you have five and a boyfriend. She was attempting to quench her spiritual thirst through relationships. She was moving from one bad relationship to another, hopping in one bed and then another. But like a traveler in the desert, her spiritual thirst was not quenched. This passage makes it clear 
that there exists a universal need for living water. Because of our sin, each one of us, like this woman, is thirsting for spiritual satisfaction. Yet everything we turn to leaves us empty and longing for more. It doesn't make a difference who we are. We might be tempted to say, well, of course she's searching for something. Look at her. She's a wreck. Let me ask you, why do you think Nicodemus, chapter 3, came to Jesus by night? Was it because he had everything figured out? Was it because he wanted to correct some of Jesus' theology? No. It was because he was thirsty. For years, he was attempting to satisfy his thirst through keeping rules and studying theology and helping people. But it wasn't enough. It could never be enough. Nothing he could do would ever satisfy. Jesus has informed this woman of a universal need. And secondly, he offers her a simple solution. Her question to Jesus was, where do you get that living water? Verse 11. That's a great question. It's a question that I believe each one of us, at some point, in some way, we ask as well. Where can I find that which will satisfy? Jesus' answer is found in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. We find the living water by coming to Christ and asking him. It is only through him that we will discover the satisfaction that we look for so desperately in other things. The only remedy for our parched souls is the living water freely dispensed by Jesus Christ. A few verses later, Jesus repeats this invitation. As he describes the results of drinking this living water, he says, verse 14, Whoever drinks of the living water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him. The solution is that simple. We must abandon our attempts to find satisfaction on our own. And instead, turn to Jesus and in Him find lasting satisfaction. You know, the more I think about it, the more I become convinced that it is too simple for many people. We bought into the American dream, haven't we? We're convinced that We can do it ourselves. That if we're ever going to be happy and satisfied, it's because we've pulled ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and done the work on our own. Ultimately, we think we've got to find our satisfaction in our own effort because we know what is best, we know what we need, and we're the best ones to supply it. A lot of us are like the man who came to Jesus one day asking, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We want to do something for it. We want to earn it. We don't want to admit or acknowledge that we are unable by ourselves to ever be fulfilled. We don't want to concede that we need help. We'd rather go through life filling our jar with water that doesn't satisfy 
than to turn humbly to Jesus and to ask him for the water that actually quenches our thirst. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, the hope and promise of living water is offered by God. But we also see clearly the result of turning from God and the barrenness of life apart from Him. In chapter 2, verse 13, the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. What a travesty. The chosen people of God had the the fountain of living water open and available to them. Their thirst could be quenched. Their souls could be satisfied by God. Yet tragically, they forsook God over and over repeatedly. They turned from the all-satisfying source of life and strength and attempted to find satisfaction in something else. Instead of drinking freely from the fountain of life that God offered, they took out their hammer and their chisel and started carving out little bowls and digging wells. Yet every time they poured water in, it ran out. You can almost hear them as they're digging say, I know what is best. I know how to be happy. I want to do it my way. They wanted satisfaction in something other than God. This, friends, is the essence of sin. Pursuing our happiness in something other than God. Consider it from the perspective of a people that lived in a dry and dusty land where drought could be devastating where a lack of water meant a lack of food. Water meant everything. Clean, pure, abundant, flowing water was a wonderful picture of promise and security. God made it clear in Jeremiah's prophecy. And Jesus makes it clear to the Samaritan woman that joy and satisfaction can only be found in Him. I wonder if you're carving little bowls and digging shallow wells instead of enjoying the living water that God has provided. Friend, if you've never turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from that sin, I urge you to do so today. You are thirsting for something. Maybe that thirst is being masked temporarily by something else, but it is there. Maybe you can identify with the woman who was attempting to quench her spiritual longings by throwing herself into relationship after relationship. Maybe you're like Nicodemus, the religious leader who was looking for satisfaction in organized religion. He did everything he was told to do. He was devout and moral, but he was empty. Our only hope for satisfaction and joy is found by turning from the sin we so easily and desperately cling to and coming in faith to Jesus Christ. Trusting in Him for the peace and satisfaction that can only be found in a personal relationship with Him. A restored relationship with God. 
Jeremiah warned the people about the sin of turning from God and attempting to find happiness and joy outside of a relationship with him. It's this simple. Regardless of the situation in life that we face, Jesus is what we need. Sister, if you're here struggling to forgive your husband for a sin he has committed against you, if you desire a healthy relationship with him, but you just can't get over what he has done, you don't need therapy. You don't need to talk over and over about relationships and how to make them better. You need to learn about Jesus. You need to understand that your sin against him is far greater than your husband's sin against you. You need to read about Jesus offering his life so that you can be forgiven and reconciled to God. As you hear and see and understand the reconciling love of Christ, then you can forgive just as he forgave you. Brother, maybe you feel enslaved to sin, whether it's greed or ambition or lust. No one needs to convince you You're well aware of the depth of your own depravity. You try and try not to give in to those raging sinful desires, but you just seem overwhelmed by them. You need more than an accountability partner or an internet filter. You need to understand that Jesus was victorious over sin. You need to read Galatians chapter 4 and study what it means when the scripture tells you that Jesus came to redeem you and that you are no longer a slave. Your hope for victory over controlling sin does not come through talking about that sin all the time. It's about understanding and trusting in Jesus who has liberated you from false gods like greed and lust. In Jesus Christ, every need is met. Our deep spiritual desire is finally satisfied in Him. The need for Christ is universal. The solution is simple. Turn from your sin and to Him. And third, Jesus promises a wonderful result. Look at verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Here's the picture Jesus wants us to see. Every man and woman is in desperate straits spiritually. We are like a traveler lost in the desert of sin and death. We need help. Our only hope for life is to find water. We try over and over again and again. We turn to this person or to that activity or to this good work or to that religious system hoping to find the solution. Sometimes it seems like we found it. For a while it seems like we've stumbled on something that quenches our thirst and meets our need. But before long we realize that what we thought was the solution was not. So we start looking again. We search desperately for something, anything that will dull the thirst, even if it's only temporary. Yet all we can find, 
apart from Jesus Christ is salt water. It seems to help for a moment, but we end up more parched than we were before. Look closely at the promise Jesus makes to this woman. Here's what he is not promising. He is not saying that we take one sip from this water and never thirst again. What he is saying is that we turn to him and receive this living water. Our thirst is quenched. But the promise continues. Not only is our thirst quenched, but the next time we're thirsty, we have access to the living water again. He tells her that the living water will become within her a spring of water. We never need to be desperate again. Once we turn to Jesus and we find in him the fulfilling, satisfying source of spiritual nourishment, we can go back and back again and again. The spring is always open, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even on holidays. This is what we find when we come to Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah wrote that those who come to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, they shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. Chapter 49, verse 10. Many of us have probably memorized the 23rd Psalm. It begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall, shall not want. That's quite a statement, I shall not want. Do you know anyone who doesn't want? Do you know anyone who has no needs? I don't. I know that I want. I know that I have needs. I know that I don't have it all. So how are we to understand the statement from the psalmist? Well, it's clarified for us in the rest of the psalm. He continues, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The psalmist is not saying that he never has needs. He's saying that every need he has is met in God. When he's tired, God gives rest. When he's thirsty, God gives water that quenches his thirst. When he falters, God restores him. When he's unsure of what to do, God guides him. Jesus makes this promise to the woman at the well. Come to me. Drink of the living water that I give. When you do, you will find your thirst quenched. And every day you can drink of that water that genuinely satisfies. What a wonderful promise. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if we who have tasted the living water, we who have turned from our sin and come to Jesus for salvation, I wonder how often we return to the fountain to drink freely of the water which satisfies I know that I'm often enticed and seduced into looking for satisfaction in the stagnant waters of sin. Now, Satan's crafty. He takes salt water and he puts it in attractive bottles with words like relationships, children, popularity, success, friends, food, 
money. And even after we've tasted the pure flowing water which satisfies, we can get lured back and begin to seek our happiness in these fleeting, empty pleasures. Next time you're tempted to look for happiness, to look for contentment, to look for satisfaction in something other than Christ, I want to encourage you to ask yourself a question. I promise you that I'll do the same. Let's make a commitment to ask the question, what do we say about the worth of God when we pursue sin? What do we say about the value of Jesus Christ when we choose selfish desires and trivial pleasures over him? Well, there's much more in this passage. We could continue digging in it and making wonderful discoveries for weeks, but I was only invited for one service, so we'll end. What I want you to do is, is if you will, plant a couple flags right in this passage. You know how explorers would plant their country's flag in new territory when they discovered it? And whenever someone would cross that flag, it would be an instant reminder of what had happened there. Well, I want you to plant a couple flags in this passage. Reminders of two wonderful truths about Jesus. Let's, if you will, dig them deep into the soil of our minds so that we instantly remember them every time we turn here. Flag number one. This passage should instantly remind us of his ultimate worth. I love John Piper's well-known quote, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We demonstrate the surpassing worth of Christ when we reject earthly empty pleasures and embrace him as our all-consuming desire. A Christian who is satisfied with money or vacation or leisure or healthy children or a good job makes a sweeping declaration to the world that God is not valuable. A Christian who constantly drinks from the pleasures of this world calls Jesus a liar. Because he looks at that woman standing by the well and says, what Jesus says is not true. He does not satisfy. But the believer who fiercely resists temptation so that they might pursue Christ. The believer who is passionate about pursuing joy in Christ, not sin. This believer declares that Jesus is worthy, that he is worth it, that he is satisfying. If you've ever received an email from Stephen Davy, it is signed satisfied in Christ. Let that be the signature of our lives. We are satisfied with him, for he alone is worthy. Flag number two. This passage should instantly remind us of his amazing plan. In it we see clearly the love of Jesus for the whole world. God has chosen to bring salvation to men and women of all nations, tribes, and tongues. God is bringing together a people from every corner of the globe who have 
turned from the emptiness of sin and have found their salvation and satisfaction in His Son. This is the church. We are those who have been ransomed by the death of Christ. And we long for the day when we will be in His presence enjoying eternal life with Him forever. Let's close by reading together a glorious passage from the book of Revelation. It points us ahead to the day when we will, with believers from around the globe, celebrate together the incomparable worth of Jesus. Revelation chapter 5. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We pray with me? Father, we come to you because of what Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has done for us. It was by his sacrificial death that we have been ransomed and made a part of your special people. Thank you for bringing men and women from every tribe, language, people, and nation to the fountain of living water that quenches our spiritual thirst. Thank you for making us a kingdom and priest to you. Lord, you are worthy to receive all glory. Your Son is worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, glory, honor, and blessing forever and ever. Help us to proclaim your matchless name and your immeasurable worth not only with our lips, but also with our lives. Help us to be radically committed to pursuing lasting joy in you. Let everyone in this room who thirsts come to Jesus for living water. Help us to forsake our wicked ways and unrighteous thoughts and return to you for abundant pardon and everlasting refreshment. To you, the fountain of living water, we commit our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.